Let's finish off talking about this third point that illustrates Satan in the Middle Ages and the mindset of people in the Middle Ages, the whole issue of witchcraft and witch accusations. Now, you've read Briggs, Witches and Neighbors, that whole chapter from Briggs. So I'll take it for granted that you've learned what you can learn from him. And we'll just touch on a few of the issues he, he raises. First of all, to note that it's within the accusations of witchcraft that you see a, quite a prominent place for Satan, don't you? In the mindset of the people involved, both the people who are being accused of witchcraft and the people who are doing the accusing. Believe something about Satan that relates to witchcraft. And in a way, the witchcraft accusations bring out something uh, about the mindset of people in the Middle Ages that we wouldn't have known otherwise, about some of the details of how they're imagining Satan interacting with human beings. What is Briggs' main argument in the chapter you read, just to quickly summarize that? Were there any people in the Middle Ages, likely, who actually engaged in activities that they thought themselves were uh, soliciting Satan's help and making a pact with Satan. His whole argument is, it's in the mindset of people that witches exist. People admit they're witches because they're tortured. And they also believe the whole mindset of the people that are accusing them to the point where they start to take on the stories they would imagine a witch would do and give a false confession, in other words of having been a witch and having done all the things everyone expects a witch to do, including kissing Satan's ass, quite literally. In this case, who is it that gets accused of being a witch, generally speaking? What is this, let's call it the sin, but it's not really a sin. What is the thing that a person does, ultimately, in Briggs' view, that leads to accusation of witchcraft? They argue a lot with people and they're disliked and they do things that people don't like. The way you got accused of being a witch wasn't by doing anything particularly satanic. It was just by not being liked. Bad things happening and people blaming someone who's not liked for bad things happening. People dying and people blaming someone else that they don't like for that person's death. Crops failing and people blaming someone that's disliked within the community and accusing them of witchcraft. That's the scenario he outlines for you. So that it's more a social function, you could say, that witchcraft accusations play. It tells you more about social life and interactions within the community than it tells you about anything to do with what actually people did. But in the process of doing this, imposing on someone the accusation of witchcraft brings with it a whole scenario of Satan's role, doesn't it? And that's what... Briggs really outlines for you. So let's just briefly go through some of the characteristics of the common witchcraft worldview that involves a central role for Satan and therefore impacts and reflects the, the history of Satan and how he's developing in, in this time period. Remember that the witchcraft trials almost all happen between 1400 and 1600 and then stop. This is another thing that tells you that it's not underground rituals that suddenly get discovered. It's just a, it's a phenomenon of the, that period, 1400 to 1600, and for some reason things change. People find other ways of blaming people they don't like and, and accusing them 
beyond this particular scenario. So it's from 1400 to 1600 that we primarily have evidence for any of this. Um, so there's social and psychological functions of witchcraft that relate to people being disliked and people admitting that they've done things that they know is in the imagination of the accusers and that they already have in their own imagination as the things a witch does. Let's look at the image of the witch, first of all. There are certain images of what a witch was that became dominant, even though they don't reflect necessarily all of the people that were accused. But on page 21 of Briggs' chapter, you have this quote that reflects the common scenario. Every old woman with a wrinkled face, a furred brow, a hairy lip, a gobber tooth, a squint eye, a squeaking voice, or a scolding tongue. I think the scolding tongue is very important here. Having a rugged coat on her back, a skull cap on her head, a spindle in her hand, and a dog or cat by her side is not only suspected, but pronounced for a witch. This is a person back in the Middle Ages saying that. You know, sort of stepping back and saying, Whoa, what's going on with this uh, stuff? What Briggs goes on to say is that that's the standard view of what a witch would look like, but the reality of what actually happened is there's sometimes children, including the Salem witch trials, for anyone who's studied that, uh, children being accused of witchcraft, men being accused of witchcraft, young women being accused of witchcraft. So even though the standard scenario is that old raggedy witch with a, with a, a cat or dog and a very scolding sort of personality, there's nonetheless a, a broad range of people who are accused. And he mentions that between 20 and 25% of those charged in the trials we have record of in Europe were men. Now, the essence of what a witch is, is the pact with the devil. So obviously, Satan plays a very prominent role here, doesn't he? And it's in the fantasy, in the imagination of people who believe that these things exist that we're talking about here, not that people actually made pacts with the devil. Look on page 25, just where he summarizes what he has gained from studying the primary sources. So he's extensively read every trial of a witch, and then he realizes the common denominators and summarizes it for you here, this idea of the diabolical pact. Everyone seems to have known how the devil carried out his seductions. He's talking about the worldview of people in the Middle Ages. Once witches decided to confess, they told similar stories with very little prompting, which rarely changed much over time. The devil normally appeared unbidden to someone who was in a receptive psychological state. This might involve anger against relatives or neighbors, despair caused by poverty or hunger, or anxiety at being called a witch. He offered consoling words, Satan did, a gift of money, and assurances that his followers would not want for anything. He might also promise that they would have power to avenge their wrongs, often providing a powder with which such revenge could be effected. So the idea is, after you've been accused of being a witch, there would be all kinds of bad things that had happened that the accusers would say, she killed my brother, she made the crops fail, my dogs died, and she did it with the powder that Satan gave her. Right? It's in hindsight that that's how it works. Once the prospective recruit agreed to renounce God and take the devil for master, the latter gave symbolic force to the change of allegiance. This normally meant touching the new witch 
to impose the mark, leaving either a visible blemish on the skin or an insensible place. So if you have a mark on your skin, after you've been accused of being a witch, take a look at your skin now, before you're accused, you'll be able to find a mark. That will be the mark where Satan pinched you once you get accused of being. You get the, you get the scenario of how this is working in reality, even though in their mindset it's that you're identifying people who have allegiances with the devil. And people admitting it because they're under torture and because everyone else is believing it. Psychologically, that can sometimes happen. False confession. Once the prospective recruit agreed to renounce God to get the pinch, at the same time the chrism given at baptism was removed by this pinch of Satan. With women, the devil then took possession of them sexually, so you have sex with the devil if you're a witch. An experience which they often describe in vivid terms as a virtual rape made more unpleasant by the glacial coldness of his penis. So it's more of a Dante-type Satan that does the deed. Any remaining illusions were shattered when the money turned out to be leaves or horse dung, at which point the witches knew they had been cheated. Men occasionally produced their own version of the sexual element with the devil taking female form, but this got the symbolism so wrong that it never became general. So there you have his quick summary based on his analysis of the primary sources. And then you have a few examples of primary sources. Let's look at one of them, page 26. Here's the confession of Catherine, 1608, and, and she confesses this. I am a witch. Ten years ago, last St. Lawrence Day, I was coming back from visiting my sister Barbon at Magnier, walking alone through the woods, all dreamy and thoughtful that I had been so long a childless widow, and that my relatives discouraged me from remarrying, which I would have liked to do. When I arrived at the place of the round oak in the middle of the woods, I was astonished and very frightened by the sight of a great black man who appeared to me. At first he said to me, Poor woman, you are very thoughtful. And although I quickly recommended myself to St. Nicholas, he then suddenly threw me down, had intercourse with me, and at the same time pinched me roughly on the forehead. After this he said, You are mine, have no regret. I will make you a lady and give you great wealth. I knew in the same hour it was the evil spirit but could not retract because he had instantly made me renounce God, chrism, and baptism, promising to serve him. He gave me a stick, saying that if I bore hatred to anyone, I could avenge myself by touching them or their animals with the stick, then disappeared, saying I would soon see him again, and his name was Percy. This is a favorite name for Satan that Russell talks a little bit about, old Percy, or person in some of the other sources. So there you have an example of a confession under torture that reflects the shared worldview of the accused and the accuser and replicates the same component parts that you always find in the diabolical pact. This has legacies, as I mentioned there, uh, relating to that, making a deal with Satan for good guitar skills or making a deal with Satan for being wise the Faust story we're going to read soon. The idea of a pact, a deal with the devil. Let's move on to that other concept that was in the mindset of the Middle Ages, and that is the witch's Sabbath. If you got accused of being a witch, it first of all meant you had disliked people and, and that this was part of the reason why people have accused you of being a witch and you had run-ins with people. They accused you of being a witch, it meant you had made a diabolical pact and it meant you go to the witch's Sabbath. Many of the accusations include this. 
namely that there was an alternative inverted ceremony that witches engaged in that turned the church's ceremonies on its head. It's sort of the anti-ceremonies or the black mass or uh, what's Superman's alternative guy? The uh, Bizarro. Bizarro. So the Bizarro, that's one I was trying to think of. Bizarro mass, the Bizarro church, the Bizarro god Satan. And so think of what the church does, and then the witch's sabbat's going to be the same in all kinds of ways, but going to be the opposite. Right? It's going to be the bizarro version. So it inverts the communal gathering of the church and the rituals of the church and adds a whole lot of sexual stuff, as you can imagine, since the whole idea of the witch is that she has sex with the devil. So obviously the witch's sabbat's going to be full with all kinds of stuff that uh, is considered gross. Um, take a look at a French judge on page 32 of your photocopied material where he describes the purposes of the witch's sabbat. So the witch's sabbat is when the witches secretly get together at night and meet with the devil to do, to do all their opposite rituals to what the church does. To dance indecently, to banquet filthily, to couple diabolically, to sodomize execrably, to blaspheme scandalously, to pursue brutally every horrible, dirty, and unnatural desire, to hold his precious toads, vipers, lizards, and all sorts of poisons, to love a vile-smelling goat, to caress him lovingly, to press against and copulate with him horribly and shamelessly. Now, one thing that Briggs really highlights that I want to point out in connection with this idea of inverting the rituals of the church is that the main accusation that, of what happens at the witches' Sabbath is that they engage in rituals, inverted rituals, that actually guarantee the destruction of crops. That the purpose of the witches' Sabbath is to do the satanic rituals that will harm the community. Remember that the person who's accused of witchcraft is usually a person who's perceived to be disliked and perceived to have been the one to have harmed individuals. So the witches' Sabbath, when the witches all get together in a group at night, it's to harm the community. And all of their rituals are aimed at harming the community. And the main way to harm the community is to do rituals that destroy the crops. What Briggs points out is the main rituals of the church when it gathers together in the Middle Ages in regions where, like this, is to engage in rituals that will guarantee God will bring good crops. So this whole idea of the, the uh, survival of the community and the health of the community being compromised is central to the witches' Sabbath, precisely because the meaning of getting together in the church is to guarantee God will provide the, the, the crops. So I thought that was a very uh, insightful way of understanding, uh, sociologically almost, what's going on. Uh, with the idea of the witch's Sabbath. Yeah, now let me give you my suspicions on that whole thing okay. because Ann Briggs mentions this briefly. And that is that there used to be a standard view that became part of the Encyclopedia Britannica and all this, a certain scholars' speculation that the cases of witchcraft accusation are the survivalism of paganism and incidences of a few people still engaging in former pagan practices, including the worship of the goddess Artemis and all this sort of thing. It turned out that that scholar's theory, which has become influential in popular perceptions, was total bunk. 
My impression, though, is that there's no such thing as witches, and that that includes there's no such thing as pagans being accused as witches. But that's my overall impression from what I've studied. Within the neo-pagan community, you can imagine that there's a whole heritage of the continuance of paganism from the Roman time, or from Mesopotamian times right up to now, and they have their whole ancestral traditions carried on ever since the beginning. But that's more of an internal religious perspective than it is an actual historical claim. One figure I should introduce before I show the photos is Antichrist. You've come across him before, haven't you? Remember back when we read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, a fraction of it at least in, in, in the course? I mentioned to you that the only occurrence of the word Antichrist in the Bible is in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. But mainly 1st and 2nd, I don't think it's in 3rd John. Those letters that, that John the Elder writes in the late 1st century. At that point, there's not a clear idea of what that figure is. But that figure, Antichrist, it starts attaching itself to all kinds of other figures in the, in the Bible, including the beast of John's apocalypse that you guys are familiar with, beast from the sea, and uh, the, the monstrous figure in the book of Daniel, and that these things all start to come together into a figure of Antichrist. And in the Middle Ages, this idea of Antichrist builds momentum and becomes sort of the central way in which, in the internal battles within Christianity, demonization of your enemy often took the form of accusing your enemy of being the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist? Well, it's the emissary of Satan in the same way that Christ is the emissary of God. And so there's an inverted picture of God and his emissary sent person, uh, uh, Christ, and then Satan and his sent person, the Antichrist, who will come at the end times, just before God intervenes is when the Antichrist will come in the formulation of that notion in the Middle Ages. So the Antichrist figure has its own history that we haven't, aren't able to really explore fully in this course, except to say that it's intimately connected with Satan. Sort of Satan's second-hand man. Uh, and sort of does Satan's bidding. And obviously the whole concept of Antichrist is that someone opposed to Christ, just in the essence of the, the meaning of the term. Often he's depicted in the Middle Ages as a Jew, as Satan is. Antichrist is depicted as a Jew, and Satan is depicted as a Jew. Uh, so there's a, bit, there's a bit of the demonization of outsiders going on, to say the least. It's Christians demonizing Jews to some degree that uh, we'll see in some of these photos. And then in the battles of the Reformation period, this whole thing, everyone calling everyone else Antichrist, is all over the place. So internal battles within Christianity, this uh, figure plays a, an important role. 